It is Monday, December 25th, 2023, and this is Ozarks at Large. Happy Christmas. I'm Kyle Callums. Today, some of our favorite episodes from the past year. Let's call it a Christmas past episode, including a conversation about something that existed before Christmas, dinosaurs. One of the things we'll actually talk about probably in the class is um, the the westward movement of the U.S. in like the late 1800s and, you know, the whole idea of manifest destiny. And engineering antiquity. Our modern interstate system, uh, there's some legacy there of the Roman road. We'll also spend time learning about a murder from the Gilded Age. And he was buying properties. He was owning tenements, and he was—he uh, actually had like a, an entertainment hall that he built and, and established. A few of our favorite conversations from the past year about the past, after the news of the present. Support for KUAF comes from Adventure Subaru, featuring fuel-friendly, symmetrical all-wheel drive vehicles and service in the Nelms tradition. Adventure's eco-friendly dealership is located off Interstate 49 and exit 65 at Stephen Carr Memorial Boulevard in Fayetteville. AdventureSubaru.com Merry Christmas. This is Ozarks at Large for Monday, December 25th, 2023. I'm Kyle Kelps. Thanks for being with us on this holiday. Beginning today and lasting through the next two weeks, We're going to be sharing some of our favorite interviews, conversations, news stories, and pieces that we aired previously in 2023. I'll begin with one of my favorite interviews of this year with Dr. Selena Suarez. She's an associate professor in the Department of Geosciences at the University of Arkansas. And this coming spring semester, she'll be leading an honors college seminar called The Science, Politics, and Culture of Dinosaurs. This fall, I invited her to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio and asked her if dinosaurs can be good ambassadors for science. Ooh, that is a very good question. Yes, but can be no sometimes, depending on your perspective. Uh, So one of the things we'll actually talk about probably in the class is um, the, the westward movement of the U.S. in like the late 1800s and, you know, the whole idea of manifest destiny. After the Civil War, there was basically a mandate from Congress to expand out west and collect as many resources as possible. Included in those resources were fossils. Um, And it was just around the time that um, kind of the science of paleontology was uh, being established. And until like the late 1800s, it was basically the Europeans were dominating. And so in the late 1800s, when, you know, vast amounts of fossils were being found in the American West, you know, the U.S. was like, we can make our mark. U.S. scientists were like, we can make our mark. We have great stuff here, um, which was great for science, terrible for Native American populations because those fossils were part of their history, part of their culture, part of their understanding of the origin of the world to them. Um, and so not so much of a great ambassador in that that aspect. And, and even – more recently in like the 1950s and 60s when scientists were going out and excavating in other countries. Um, Nowadays, people are much more aware of that. But, you know, the idea of helicopter science, scientists coming in, excavating fossils from other countries, taking them back with them with no acknowledgement of where they came from or what the local uh, cultures or traditions are. Nowadays, I'd say they're with that understanding that most scientists have today, that's less so, and it can offer be it can be more dinosaurs can be more of a better ambassador for teaching 
uh, people about other cultures. So I was just working on my presentation just a little while ago, sitting across at the library, and that's one of the things I want to put in there because like, I've, I've had some students come with me to other countries, and it's a great eye-opening experience for them. They meet people from different cultures, different backgrounds, um, and in that case, it's a really great ambassador because everybody's really interested in the dinosaurs come from very different cultures and backgrounds, but we're all there for the same purpose. In the course, you'll be talking about cultures and, mm -hmm. and respect. What else do you cover that might be surprising to lay people? Um, art, um, the whole idea of STEAM, like science, technology, education, uh, engineering, math, and art, combining art. A paleo artist I am fascinated with. I, I know several paleo, paleo artists, and they do amazing work. And so students that are in the, in the art in, in, in the art world, you know, like I'd be interested in learning from them. Science communicators are more and more important these days. So um, we'll be looking at it from that perspective. And then policy, like looking at things from the policy perspective, like the Paleontological Resource Protection Act, um, and you do, even like the Native American Graves and Repatriation Act, since fossils are part of Native American culture, some have argued that, well, you know, Places like the Carnegie or Yale or Smithsonian have fossils that were taken from Native American lands that were part of Native American cultures. They should be returned to Native American uh, tribes. And so, like, these are hot button issues that a lot of paleontologists have different opinions on and, and I think kind of broadens the perspective of dinosaurs to not just the science or the fascination, but also uh, kind of the practical aspect of policy and science communication, education about science, things like that. So we do want to touch on all of these things under the guise of dinosaurs. <laughs> so when you're in Wyoming or South Africa or China, is it best to go to places where we have where fossils had been discovered before, or can there just be some? Uh, if you want to be if. If you want a guarantee of success, sure. You want to go to those places where fossils have been found before and maybe pick over sites that people hadn't, you know, sites that may have been excavated in the past but then abandoned. Um, but you could certainly also look at places where fossils are not commonly found. And usually the reason why they're not commonly found is because there's cover, like plants and things like that. Um, so, like, there's some really cool discoveries happening in, you know, Japan, even here in Arkansas, like the dinosaurs from south, southwest Arkansas, you know, um, you don't find them that often <laughs> because there's too much cover. Usually you find them, you know, in quarry sites and things like that. But they're still there and they're still new. So, like, a lot of people are quite happy to go look in these, you know, previously not excavated places. Mostly, I mean, it's hard because mm. it's hard to find outcrop, but you're almost guaranteed to find something new. So it depends on what you, which hardship you want to deal with. <laughs> Finally, I imagine you'll be able to talk, at, touch on at least somewhat climate change. Absolutely, Since yeah. Since dinosaurs were, you know, kind of victims of it. They were. I mean, dinosaurs saw two mass extinctions during their time, the end Triassic mass extinction, which kind of opened the door for them to become the most dominant vertebrate probably in Earth's history. Um, we could debate about birds and say, well, birds are dinosaurs, so they're definitely the most dominant uh, vertebrate to, to, to live on Earth. Um, 
and then the end tri- uh, the the end Cretaceous extinction event, and both of those are tight, very much tied to climate change. The end Triassic extinction event was likely the result of volcanic massive volcanic eruptions, as Pangaea, the supermassive mm-hmm. continent, was splitting apart. There were massive eruptions, uh, CO2 increase, so there was probably some extensive, initially probably some initial global cooling and then rapid global warming. So this ping-ponging back and forth between different climate states probably did in the dinosaur ants, uh, predecessors and allowed dinosaurs to take over. And then the end Cretaceous extinction event, obviously a gigantic asteroid slamming into the Earth is not great. And then on top of that, there were more mass, uh, massive eruptions happening in uh, India at the time, the Deccan basalt traps that were releasing a lot of volcanic gases into the atmosphere, and uh, that causes climate change. Climate change causes habitat degradation. Habitat degradation and fragmenting causes extinction on higher levels. So um, paleontologists are – a lot of different schools are starting to eliminate their paleontology uh, programs because a lot of people think that, oh, well, that's just old science. We don't really do that anymore. But paleontologists are the ones that show us that there are extinction events that are tied to climate change. And so when we're talking about future climate change, it's, you know, people talk about this quote-unquote six-math extinction. You know, we wouldn't know there was a six-math extinction and if we didn't know anything about the previous five mass extinctions. Mm-hmm. So, so paleontologists and paleoclimatologists are um, tightly intertwined and really important for understanding climate change. And dinosaurs are an excellent record for us to go back in time and look at this experiment that's happening today just in the past. Dr. Selena Suarez is an associate professor of geosciences at the University of Arkansas. In the spring, she's leading a University of Arkansas Honors College signature seminar series called The Science, Politics, and Culture of Dinosaurs. Our conversation first aired on Ozarks at Large in early October. Next, we're going to move up a millennia or so with another one of our favorite conversations from 2023, also regarding an upcoming Honors College signature seminar. This one about engineering in antiquity. That's just ahead. Thanks for being with us on this Christmas Day. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellums. Today and for the next two weeks, we're listening again to some of our favorite interviews and news stories from Ozarks at Large in 2023. This spring, the University of Arkansas Honors College will host the signature seminar, Engineering Antiquity, led by Kevin Hall, Associate Dean for Academics in the College of Engineering. He's also a civil engineer. He came to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio this fall and told us that in the seminar, he'll talk about the how of these ancient engineering wonders, but also the why. A classic example, he says, is the Roman road. Not only how it's built, but the fact that it's just arrow straight through whatever terrain they encounter. If they can cut through the hill, they will. If they'll build, if they need to build a bridge, they will. But one of one of the operating narratives there is that not even nature can stop the Roman army, and so we really dig into those narratives uh, on on why this technology existed, how did you know, why were they using it the way they were, and so it really makes for a much richer discussion. 
um, and and it really helps the students to understand at the end of the day, and I'm an engineer, at the end of the day, we need to continue to ask ourselves, just because we can do it, should we do it? That's what I'm after. And that's interesting because that's asking something of to know something of then mm-hmm. as well as now. Absolutely. You have to dig into the history. You have to understand the Roman Empire um, in, in a lot of its different forms. Um, and, and, of course, from, from, I guess you would say, republic to empire, things change. And so some of the some of the work, some of the public works that are done, Republic era, may have a different narrative. You can see some shifts in that narrative from Republic to Empire. Um, certainly, individual emperors would pursue public works not for the sake of the public works. Um, you know, there's there's one there's one th- uh, story or one theory, if you will, that goes around about uh, Emperor Hadrian. Um, I was very fortunate this summer to go to Scotland and drove down to and through the UK to go to part of Hadrian's Wall. So did Hadrian build it really, really to keep the Scots out of northern what we call England? Or was it more Rome was very built by the time Hadrian came on the scene? He needed a massive public works thing that had his stamp on it. So that narrative is a little different now than just we're going to build a defensive fortification. You mentioned the Roman roads that stretched for mm. thousands of miles, arrow straight. Are there – I mean, there are connections to our roads now. Oh, absolutely. One of the things that you see when you study especially Roman engineering, uh, and we'll exp- we can expand that beyond just roads, when you, when you look at the basic needs of society, when you look at clean water, sanitation, transportation, uh, all of these different kinds of, of technologies, what, what you see in the built environment today is absolutely a reflection of what we saw or, or what you could see in Roman engineering. Now, obviously, other cultures, I mean, everything from Babylonian to Egyptian to Aztec, lots of cultures develop this kind of technology. I tend to focus on Roman technology. But certainly, um, our modern interstate system, uh, there's some legacy there of the Roman road because the Roman road, obviously, it was built for um, for defensive purposes. The, the army could, could move rapid distances uh, relatively easily, com- commercial purposes and things like that. But they did things that other people didn't do. Number one, they paved them so that they were all weather. Hmm. And number two, they cut all of the vegetation back as much as they could, 100 paces on each side of the road. Now, defensively, that means somebody can't ambush you right there on the road. But you look at modern-day highways with large right-of-ways mm-hmm. on either side, that's a legacy from what the Romans uh, did. And so the other – the other, and, and a lot of people know this, this little anecdote, but um, why is the Roman road as wide as it is? Well, that comes actually from the Babylonians. It's the widths of – two horses behinds that would pull a, t- a two-horse cart or a two-horse chariot. Uh, we, we, we kept those kinds of measurements. And in fact, that's why rail gauges, that's why two rails on our railroads are, this, are that distance apart. I think the phrase engineering antiquity for most of us, pyramids, coliseum, yes. roads, 
I'm going to guess that it goes far beyond these major structures. Far beyond. Um, yeah, we. I do. I do. Um, we do talk about the pyramids. We touch. In fact, just just because it's interesting, we all we actually touch on Stonehenge. Uh, how in the world did they? We we kind of know. We know pretty much now where the stones came from, uh, and how in the world did they transport them and stand them up the way they did? And so we touch on that a little bit. But certainly the focus is on is on Roman engineering. It's a fascinating topic because every element that we think a society needs to exist in a way that the people aren't under hardship. And and again, most of this is not glamorous. I mean, most people look at a road and it's like, it's a road. It's not glamorous. But even to the point of sanitation and water supply, when you look, one one of the very, very many reasons why the Roman Empire you know, could could do what they did, and the city of Rome become what it became is they had a very steady, very dependable clean water supply. That is not to be overestimated. I mean, why did most cities grow up by a river? They weren't going to take the water out of the river. Well, if you're dumping your waste into the river and plus the Tiber wasn't the cleanest of rivers anyway, they're not going to get their drinking water out of the Tiber. So they're going to bring it in from outside, and it's going to take some massive engineering to bring that much water in in from the outside. I mean, estimates of Rome being more than a million people, even in in the era that we're talking about, that takes tremendous amounts of water, not just for drinking, but they love their baths too. So there's part of that culture there. What are some questions that maybe we can't answer because we just don't have the evidence or well i mean when you look beyond rome when you look at some of the others do we do we truly know i mean like without a shadow of a doubt how the pyramids were built yeah. yeah probably not i mean there's some great theories out there you know you've got the you've got the big sand wedge that you pull the blocks mm-hmm. over uh, some people think that the egyptians knew how to make a a, a, a rudimentary crane we don't really know um, how that how that really happened, but even uh, when you look at at Roman engineering, it's only now that some some really groundbreaking work has come out about what really, in my mind, as a civil engineer, is one of the miracles of Roman engineering, and that is concrete. Um, there's some great work being done. Um, both at Berkeley and some other places on really understanding the chemistry behind Roman concrete. They, you know, uh, there's some studies just within the last five years about uh, taking core samples from seawalls um, in Ostia and other places in Italy and some high-technology 3D uh, X-ray scanning type things to really see, okay, all right, when you put that kind of volcanic soil or ash and soil with that kind of rock, with that kind of seawater, here's the chemical reaction that happens, and it never gets weaker. We're really starting to understand that now. And so it's really exciting, actually, that we're finally starting to figure out uh, exactly how they did it. Now, when you go um, and you see some of these sites, when you see the Colosseum, when you see the Pantheon, you really do. I mean, how in the world can somebody in that era 
build something like that. I mean, the Pantheon is still, one, in my mind, one of the wonders of the world. I mean, for, for up until just in the last hundred years, the largest freestanding unreinforced concrete dome in the world. And Roma's had earthquakes and other things, and that dome is still there. And when you see it, it's breathtaking, not just from an engineering standpoint, but from an artistic standpoint. And they built that and finished that in the early second century. I mean, it's, it's mind-boggling that they could do something like that. And sometimes I wonder if we really still understand. Is there any engineering structure that inspired a young Kevin Hall to go into civil engineering? Well, believe it or not, um, growing up um, in Memphis, uh, I was fascinated with road construction, and it happens to be what I do now. I teach people how to design and build roads. Uh, big, big construction project near my house, and I would play on it with my Tonka trucks. Back when Tonkas were real, they were metal, and they, I mean, you know, they were big. And That dump truck bed would that, actually, That, that yes. dump truck bed had a little hydraulic. Yes. Oh, my gosh, yeah. So so there was that. And then while I was, um, li- while I lived in Memphis, we still had a lot a family in Arkansas and watching what we called the new bridge over the Mississippi River being built and you built it from both ends and somehow they were able to meet in the middle you know those are the kinds of things that just fascinated me Kevin Hall associate dean for academics in the College of Engineering will lead the University of Arkansas Honors College signature seminar Engineering Antiquity next spring that conversation first aired in September this year on Ozarks at Large KUAF's Daily Word Game is a five-letter puzzle available to play right now, as in T-O-D-A-Y. Ugh. Okay. You might get the word if you listen to the Ozarks at Large A-U-D-I-O. Okay, okay. Maybe it's because I forgot to remind you that you can play the game at kuaf.com or by subscribing to the Ozarks at Large newsletter that shows up in your email, I-N-B-O-X. Well, maybe you'll have better luck than me. Go try your luck today. This is Ozarks at Large for this holiday show. We're including some of our favorite conversations from the past year of Ozarks at Large. Kay Adams and Nancy Pennington grew up in Fayetteville, and they've been friends for years. They have some miles between them now. Kay lives in Rogers, and Nancy lives in Newport, Rhode Island. Those miles didn't keep them from collaborating on an article about, as well as a novelization inspired by, an 1885 murder in Newport, Rhode Island. Their article, published by Narratively.com and then abridged for a recent issue of Smithsonian Magazine, focuses on the death of Benjamin J. Burton, a prominent African-American businessman in 19th century Rhode Island. I talked with Kay and Nancy early this year by Zoom, and Nancy told me she had only learned about Benjamin J. Burton shortly before writing about him. Which is actually kind of surprising considering who Mr. Burton was. And, you know, the a short version, I guess, was he was uh, a free man, always a free man, came from Connecticut, actually went to the gold rush, made some money in California. And you have to remember that he was a free man in, in California, he was exposing himself to being made a slave. So uh, but he was successful. He came back to Newport. He bought a house with his money and he started working for people. He was a teamster. He was hauling other people's goods. 
And then he came across the idea of like, well, I can do this also. And he created the very first black express and transfer business, which really, again, it's transferring people's goods from the docks to their houses, their guests, uh, maybe if they move across town, whatever needed to be transferred. And he was very much discriminated against in that um, venture, but he persevered and he was very strong. He's very personable and he built this very successful business. And then, Kay, why don't you take it about what he did with his proceeds? So then he starts investing in more and more businesses and he ends up creating the very first means of public transportation in Newport, which was called an omnibus system. And he... And this particular uh, uh, transportation system that he developed, actually now many of the routes, like the old, the trolley routes and the and the uh, routes around Newport today, are are based on his original routes that he developed. And then he and he was buying properties. He was owning tenements, and he was uh, he actually had like a an entertainment hall that he built and, and established, and eventually. It, it was said that he became the richest black man in, in Rhode Island. Uh, the important thing about him, not just being a successful businessman, is he was also uh, a strident civil rights activist in his community and in Rhode Island. And he was politically active and he was a member of um, many of the African-American associations, including the major church where most of the African-Americans in in Newport attended. So Burton becomes this Renaissance man of the Gilded Age, in a sense, and, and being a black person, having gone above and beyond, um, he, he establishes himself as, uh, uh, you know, a, truly, a community figure. Everyone knew who Ben Burton was. A visionary figure. But of yeah. course, this story hinges on the fact that he's found dead. Yes. And 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 uh, what is so luridly interesting about this tale is who might have done it, courtroom drama, and I think it was more than a few days after he's been interred, isn't his body exhumed? Yes. Twice, actually. Only we mentioned it in the story only once. Uh, but, yeah, he, he uh, the, the, there was so much conflict in the community in Newport over his death and the ruling, the initial ruling of suicide being just unbelievable. This was a jovial, community-spirited man who everyone knew and loved, and he, and just the thought that he he would commit suicide was uh, an untenable idea to many of the community. And I think you know we're looking at it with our 21st century eyes, and of course we'd say two shots. Who's who's going to kill? Who's going to shoot themselves in the head and shoot themselves in the chest? But there was this was right after the, you know, so not long after the Civil War. And there wasn't a lot of actually we have one. I think we mentioned one of the most prominent surgeons and medical professors in the country willing to testify. This is consistent with suicide. But, you know, of course, today we would it would it would be the opposite. They would have to prove it wasn't suicide. The science wasn't there. They had no way to uh, they you know, they took the family's word for it. Again, because the family was, you know, this elite black family that was well known in the community, well respected. And the thought that they would kill their father or they would lie 
Uh, in fact, the medical examiner or the medical examiner lived across the street from Ben Burton's wife's family when she was growing up. So, you know, it would be like, how could I not take her this family's word for this? I know this family, they, you know, so it kind of went sideways from the very beginning. So the science wasn't there, but there was suspicion from the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> there was talk as as might happen with, uh, you know, a, a, a celebrity um, event. And spearheaded by uh, Ben's sister-in-law, the wife of his deceased brother. So how in Rogers and Rhode Island across more than a century, how do you put the stories together? And well, the, I think, the research was done during the pandemic. Right. It, it, exactly. Because so many of our so many of the places that we needed to go and uh, and things that we needed to find out were closed. We couldn't get them. So in the beginning, we were very much tied to archival research through old newspaper accounts. You know, um, I mean, when you talk about going down a rabbit hole of Internet research, that that was it. Nancy has always been uh, as a hobby, if anything else you know, because of uh, her interest in Newport history, had always always been looking through archival newspapers, you know, looking for stories. And then once we found it, it was about expanding that, you know, using the Library of Congress website um, and anything else that we could that we could find and every resource we could dig through. Um, and like I say, our frustration, because it was during COVID, is so many places that we needed to go to dig up some research were closed to us. But we, we did rely on the kindness of strangers. Yeah. Um, we were able to get uh, people that were, even though the library was closed, it was staffed. So we were able to get the staff to do some research. Um, University of Pennsylvania Medical School, okay. uh, Rhode Island, I mean, we, the archives, we, we really were lucky that people were willing to, you know, and not charge us. We'd say, hey, you know, can you look, can you send me these articles or can you see, and, yeah. and people would send us, so we, like Kay said, we probably spent a year researching before we've even started right, putting anything on paper, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, and during that time, Nancy and I were driving back and forth to Rhode Island because we couldn't fly in the beginning mm -hmm. due to COVID. So we took that trip back and forth a couple, two, three times. And then when it was safer to fly, you know, I, I go up there several times a year and she comes here. Nancy, you mentioned that you hadn't heard uh, Benjamin Burton's name until you initially stumbled upon him starting this journey for the two of you. Once you started researching, did you find that other people were aware or had a knowledge of his his life and his yeah. death? It's interesting that you say that because um, when I started researching, um, again, I think anybody that does research for African-Americans finds it's very difficult, um, especially if they are enslaved. I mean, we were lucky in that because Ben was free and his family was free that there were more documentations probably. But um, so there are some books and there are some websites. And so like, there's a book about um, African-Americans in Newport and that book says that he killed himself. And so if you go to Newport Town um, Hall, City Hall, and you look at the death records, they still record his death as a suicide. Now, the state record has that a line drawn through it, and you know it says murdered or gunshots. But um, any information I found about him was really like a paragraph, a blurb. These were real people, so I don't mean to make light of this because it was tragedy. But when you watch an old Perry Mason, right, it hinges on a confession. This story has a confession. This story has <laughs> quite a wild ride. Afterward, I don't want to give too much away. 
But when you're researching this, did you ever have these moments like, what? (laughs) (laughs) All the time, Kyle, all the time. We would run across like snippets. And what was really interesting is this was reported nationwide. And, you know, they would pick up the wire and different papers would pull in different uh, parts of the original story and highlight it. So we might read something in uh, the New Haven Register versus maybe the New York Sun that would have different snippets. And then we also found that certain certain papers and certain coverage had a definite pro Ben Burton was killed stance versus a definite pro no, it was suicide stance. And there was there was actually a, a really interest an interesting dichotomy of, of the of how the reporting took place. But yeah, I mean we would we'd uncover something really unusual. And you know, sadly, you know, you, you your desire to put into the story is just overwhelming, but there's only so much you, you can say. But we were surprised by quite a bit that we ran onto, especially in researching the son in law. And what's interesting is that when so we wrote this right before we published, we had the drafts of the of the final article. We'd already finished the novel. They finally opened up the archives. And so Kay and I went to the archives and we are able to find actual letters. The originals. The originals from Maria to Alan, her husband and And Alan to her, his mother. And we learned he was actually more diabolical than we knew in what what he what was being said in these letters. Hmm. Interesting. You mentioned that there's a novel and an article. Novels and articles are different lengths. What's the difference for the two of you trying to tell the story article length and then being able to have a novelization of the events? Parsing the most important uh, the, the the most important things out of the book into the article. Again, you know, we went from 135,000 words to 100,000 words. Now we're at about 85,000 uh, words on the novel. But um, it's it's just parsing out what is indeed the most important thing for the reader to know. And our novel is written in a, in a creative historical fiction format versus writing true nonfiction and citing all the sources. So that was an interesting, uh, for me, because I've never written nonfiction, Nancy, that's her forte. So uh, that was a really interesting diversion uh, between the two. He actually, they had 11 children, eight died from tuberculosis at various ages in their, their life. So there's at the time of his death, the two daughters, and he actually has a son that lives in North in uh, New York city, which he has a fascinating storyline. We'd love to tell that story, but, you know, we had to cut it. So if you read the article, you're not even aware that there's another child involved. Um, And I don't know what else we left out. There are some interesting storylines that is like when we were talking with the narratively, who was the the original publisher of this with the editor, it was like, well, if you open that door, you got to give me five, you know, 500 more words. You got to give me 2000 more words and, uh, I think we probably exceeded it. It ended up at like 6,500 words, which I think is is a lot for them. So it, I probably he was probably very generous in letting us uh, tell more than and, and we really wanted to tell the epilogue. You know, we wanted to tell the story. And then part two is and here's what happened afterwards. And there's so much more to tell after Alan. I don't want to give away the 
the, the ending, but there's just so much more to tell after the trial. Nancy Pennington and Kay Adams' article about the murder of Benjamin J. Burton can be found at narratively.com. They spoke with me early in 2023 by Zoom. This is Ozarks at Large, and today and for the next couple of weeks, our shows will contain some of our favorite conversations from the past year, like trout fishing in America. The duo was one of the headliners at this year's 76th annual Original Ozark Folk Festival in Eureka Springs. We thought that was a great opportunity to catch up with Ezra Eidlett and Keith Grimwood, so we did, talking with them by Zoom. After the touring hiatus they had during the pandemic, 2023 had been a pretty busy year for the Trouts, including what was then a just-completed trip to New Mexico. Ezra told us it had been an interesting few years. When 2020 happened, Kyle, it was it really it was like going back to college. We had no responsibilities uh, to be anywhere and nowhere to go and nothing to do, and we just studied what we loved doing. And that's playing music. And we just started studying more and more music. Now, I say going back to college, my college career was playing basketball again. <laughs> my, my college career was not academic at all. But, you know, one of the things that it keeps coming up to my mind is how have I survived so long as a musician, a working musician, knowing as little as I know? My God, I look at the Internet and I see what is available out there. And it's just it's, it's inspiring. That's the wonderful thing about music is no matter how much you know, all you find out is how much you don't know. And you just can't let it intimidate you. Just be happy with it and just get what you can. But you got to respect what you can do, too. People, they get really good and then they think, oh, that's just a throwaway lick. I do that all the time. I would love to be able to play that lick, you know, and they just think it's normal for them. Things become normal. You have to look at your own playing and your own writing and and look at what you've done. I know the world of trap music has been business. You guys discovered, you didn't discover, but you really honed in on indie and and how to do it yourself and how not to have to rely on others. And you did it through, through ambassadorship and great music and relentless touring. So it's hard work. I don't mean to minimize that at all. But you've had fun the way the whole way too, or almost the whole way, I imagine. Yeah, I would say if you put that on a scale, fun wins by a long shot. When you were in New Mexico, can you or any place, you know, especially outside of maybe Texas and Arkansas, we have these bases, and and you do have fervent fans everywhere. But can you tell pretty quickly whether the audience is majority well known or majority first time or second time? viewers we often ask that question and it, it, it is still surprising how many people are seeing us for the first time the next question i'll ask once i find out somebody's asked if that has seen us for the first time is oh what brought you here they normally pointed a friend i said what kind of music did they say that we played and i get these blank stares <laughs> they just shake their head they don't know what kind of music we, we don't know what kind of music we play when we were in New Mexico, one of the cool things there was that 
for example, there, there's people from all over. People move. Uh, there was an artist there that used to come see us in Little Rock all the time when we were playing at uh, Juanitas. Juanitas. We played at Juanitas. And she a was visual artist. A visual artist. And she was always sitting there with her young son and everything. There, there she was in New Mexico. She's an artist out there in New Mexico now. Musicians that we're, we knew back in the 70s sitting right there in the audience we cut vince bell was there we covered one of vince's songs the sun and moon and stars we covered that vince is in the audience different musicians from different places people bill hearn bill hearn we he's out there and hanging on every word and uh that's so nice to see the gathering of people again gathering together in a room and enjoying music, yeah. live music. It's fabulous. I love the odd. I love that place because it it is odd and it's so eureka. I mean, <laughs> I just and I wonder, can a venue make you feel different ways as musicians? Absolutely. Uh, you go into a, a, a storied venue like the odd or something like that you feel kind of a responsibility to to maintain the level of performance that has been there. Another thing is you feel connected. Kyle, sometimes you just feel connected to the whole thing. I feel connected back to the entertainers who have been there before, the woes who will be after me, uh, the whole bit of creation of music, everybody who's been involved in it. I feel a, a strong sense of connection at a place like the Odd. Um, now, where was it we played in Las Vegas that Liberace played in, and there was rings backstage for where he kept his elephants, and and the list of people that played this auditorium, and I can't even remember uh, Frank Sinatra. Uh, just this, this this giant list of of a a list entertainers from way back when. Just to step on that same stage was amazing. I'm glad you said that because there's a there's a theater in Miami, Oklahoma, and it's you know it was a live theater, then it was a movie theater. Now they've kind of refurbished it. And Tom Mix, Tom Mix was there once with his horse, and and the the guy who was showing me said, well, you know, no one gets excited about that. It's like, are you kidding me? I'm sitting on the same board that Tom Mix and his horse was on. That's cool. Very cool. And they have one of the at that particular theater. They have one of the original Wurlitzer pipe organs and. I got to sit there in that theater before we played that night and, and watch a, a showing of Dracula, the silent film, being played with the original music written for the silent film and, and, a, and a, an organist playing that music. It was amazing to, a throwback. It was wonderful. Do you know who allegedly opened the odd? What performer first took that stage? No. John Philip Sousa. Absolutely wow. wonderful. So we have played other stages that Philip John Philip Sousa played on in in uh, Pennsylvania. We played at the Longwood, Longwood Gardens, Gardens, and and he used to hold forth there quite regularly. There are bit of backstage. There are pictures of him on the very stage we would play. <laughs> John Philip Sousa. I was so impressed. Like when you go on the odd at the, the Ozark Folk Festival. Will will you have a set list, or do you allow yourself some wiggle room? Do you play the moment? The answer is yes to both questions. We will have a set list, and that's in case we go brain dead. And, you know, from time to time, that does happen, and, and you have something to, to reach back towards. That being said, 
we change on a dime. And being a duo is a lot like driving a sports car as opposed to a Cadillac or a truck. You know, with the two of us playing together for 47 years, we can turn on a dime, look at each other, and make that change and do it. He raises an eyebrow. I know exactly what's happening. It ain't written down. It's going to be somewhere else. And I can pretty well guess where he's going. And this guy, Ezra, he connects with an audience. That's how I learned to play for an audience. This guy is going to play music for you. Everybody leaves thinking, boy, he just seemed like he was playing it right for me. And I went, he was. He really, really was. That's his secret. I don't know how he does it. I'm shy, or I have to look at the exit sign to make sure to keep my eyes open on stage sometimes. <laughs> but I'm getting better at connecting to that audience. Ezra feeds off his audience. All right, so the Folk Festival, and this is, right, the 76th ever, I believe? I Can you believe that? 76 it's years. Actually older than Keith, which, you know, it's hard to find. It is. <laughs> None of us were around for the first one. <laughs> No, we were not there for the first one. We have played before, and it was wonderful. I remember last time, or one of the times we played, uh, Chris Smither was playing, mm -hmm. and he was busy backstage listening to the baseball game because uh, the Red Sox were really doing good at that point. He was really into it. All yeah, right, but so we're, we're looking forward to getting back there. We got two shows. We're going to be, uh, I think we're headlining on Friday, mm -hmm. and then we have a family concert on Saturday. So uh, there's a lot going on up there, man. There's yeah. a lot going on for that festival. And John Fulbright will be there as well. What a writer, what a performer, yeah. what a musician. I mean, he's the whole package. Matt, the electrician, will be there. Still yeah. on the Hill will be playing. Melissa Carper. Got it. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy to be there. I'm happy to be there. Keith Grimwood and Ezra Idlett, Trout Fishing in America, talking with me via Zoom this fall. From Little Rock. I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansas Songs. May every day be Christmas and every day be blessed. Arkansas-er Louis Jordan changed American popular music. Born 1908 in Brinkley in Monroe County, he came of age in the big band era, but he broke that paradigm, utilizing only five or six players. In the process, he created the framework for the R&B and rock groups that heard his music and followed in his wake. Jordan starred in some of the earliest forms of music video, as well as in his own full-length movies. He had more than 50 top 10 hits during his heyday, and number one songs on the R&B, pop, and even country charts. He helped introduce Calypso music to North America and influenced those we consider influences, like Chuck Berry and James Brown. In the segregated United States, Jordan crossed the color line to become a hot concert attraction for white and black audiences alike. He and his band, the Timpani Five, toured throughout the year, even on most holidays. But with a recorded legacy spanning decades, it's a surprise Jordan didn't record more holiday music. Here's one featuring the Timpani Five's Wild Bill Davis on organ. Bless you and keep you come what may recorded in june 1951 may every day be christmas was written by jordan happy birthday to you and i hope you have many more happy birthday to you and i hope you have many more 
This song, recorded the week before in June 1951 by Louis Jordan and his Timpani Five, falls into a holiday category in which diversity is always needed, birthday songs. But it wasn't released at the time. Happy Birthday Boogie, like the previous song, features longtime Timpani Five trumpeter Aaron Eisenhall, Joe Chris Columbus Morris on drums, and Bill Jennings on electric guitar. I really can't stay. But baby, it's cold outside. I've got to go away. One of Louis Jordan's most frequent duet partners was Ella Fitzgerald. They met in the 1930s before either were stars, and both were in the Chick Webb Orchestra. They even had a brief romance. Jordan, in fact, was fired from the band for trying to steal away Fitzgerald and other key players to form a new group. The pair cut Baby It's Cold Outside, heard here in April 1949. At least eight different versions of the song were recorded that year. No holiday is ever mentioned, but it became a seasonal evergreen. An array of odd couples, including Anne Margaret and Al Hurt, Willie Nelson and Nora Jones, Barry Manilow and K.T. Oslin, Rod Stewart and Dolly Parton, and Mae West and Rock Hudson have recorded it. It was prominently featured in the 2003 movie Elf, bringing the song back to holiday consciousness and new scrutiny. Where some heard the sexual coyness required of American women in society at the time in the lyrics, others heard issues of coercion and consent. Some radio stations banned it from airplay. Saturday Night Live parodied it in 2013 and 2015. In 2019, John Legend revised the original lyrics and recorded a version with Kelly Clarkson. But baby, it's cold outside. The answer is no. Louis Jordan recorded a final holiday number, Santa Claus, Santa Claus, during sessions for his 1968 album, Sakatumi. It wasn't released as a single until mid-December and wasn't included on the album, but it's since become a minor Christmas classic and only part of Louis Jordan's immense legacy. A son of Arkansas and the father of R&B, Louis Jordan died in 1975. Here's Santa Claus, Santa Claus by Arkansas' Louis Jordan of Brinkley from 1968.
Santa Claus from 1968, a rare example of holiday music from Louis Jordan of Brinkley in Monroe County. It's another song of Arkansas. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook, and may your holidays be happy ones from Arkansas. Arkansas is underwritten by Arkansas Heritage. Relive your favorite Barton Coliseum concert memories at the Old State House Museum in downtown Little Rock, where they still play it loud. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, more of our favorites from 2023, including a camp in Bentonville for children of any and all faiths. We'll also dig into forgotten Washington County history, and we'll learn why running can be a way to convey discussions about inclusion and sustainability. Those conversations and more on tomorrow's edition of Ozarks at Large. And don't forget, you can always ask your smart speaker to please play Ozarks at Large to hear the most recent daily edition of our program. And you can find all kinds of past programs at ozarksatlarge.com and kuaf.com. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville. And KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors today, Stephen Cook with Arkansas. You can find out much more about Ozarks at Large at ozarksatlarge.com and kuaf.com. Merry Christmas. Thanks for being with us. I'm Kyle Kellams. The Ozark Society is a regional conservation organization known for saving the Buffalo National River from being dammed. Members across the state who love rivers and wild lands hike, volunteer, and work toward a common goal of keeping the natural state natural. Information on memberships at ozarksociety.net.